My name is Tiho. I am a writer and former trash panda, now professional panda. I used to be a wedding photographer, software engineer, and product designer. And now I write for TV. I just finished on a job at HBO's The Sympathizer. And before that, I was staffed on Hulu's We Were the Lucky Ones. And now I'm here talking to you. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience. I So I wasn't one of those people who always like wanted to write or wanted to be in film and TV or anything like that. I... I, so like I said, I, I had all these other careers and then it happened because I, it felt like I was forced to. So as you know, there was that time when we had all of those whitewashed Asian roles and I was complaining about it all the time to my friends uh, to the point where I had a friend tell me like, T, you're, you're really bitter. You need to let this go. And Instead of doing that, I let it become my villain origin story and decided I needed to be the change uh, that I wanted to see. I was like, okay, if if this is how other people are telling our stories, then clearly we need to be the ones who step in and tell our stories. So that's when I decided to write and I took all of the screenwriting classes I could get my hands on. I did like sketch comedy as well. I joined writers groups and I wrote some pilots, got into some fellowships and then started my career professionally. Where do you think that you can pinpoint this bitterness? Because I think a lot of us feel it. And often we don't think about like what the accumulation of the bitterness comes from, but that's been going on for my entire life. And then we bury it because we're around so much mainstream and we're around other friends that are not in our boat, but we see it on screen and we, we feel it. But are there any milestones in your life where you're like, okay, this is it. I got to go and do this. Yeah. I mean, it was that, right? Like for a long time, I just accepted it growing up. Like, mm-hmm. you know, whatever Asian representation we had on screen, I just took it and I was thankful that we had anything like growing up. I was excited about the Yellow Ranger, of course. And then, um, you know, there were a lot of characters that I just decided were Asian because we didn't have very many. So I decided that uh, the green Powerpuff Girl, Buttercup, like she's Asian because she has black hair. Like, there we go. And then I even clung on to like my sister and I would be at home watching daytime TV and we had Maury Povich you know, a white man, but he was married to Connie Chung. And so we were like Asian enough. There we go. Uncle Maury, that's my Asian uncle, you know? Um, So I I just accepted it that like, okay, they're like, we're just not going to get to be on screen. But it was when I noticed that like, oh, well, they are telling Asian stories or using Asian characters, but like not including us in the process, I started getting really frustrated about it. And like, I just wanted to vent about my frustrations. But it was when when my friend who wasn't Asian was like, you need to let it go. And I thought, well, no, like this anger 
is coming from somewhere. And I think the thing that is so beautiful about anger, which like a lot of us are taught to not feel at all is like, like if we think about the different emotions, right? Like, you know, happiness, like whatever we enjoy dopamine, great. Happiness makes us want to do more of whatever it is that makes us happy. I think sadness helps draw people in like the people who are helpers. Like if you're crying or something, there are people who are like going to want to come in and help you. And then with anger, I mean, yes, you can either let it fester and just like destroy you internally, or you can let it drive you to action. And that's what I did. So I, again, like became a super villain and decided to take over. No, um, I let it, you know, change my course and right. And there was a very specific moment because at that time, so I was doing improv comedy in New York, which is where I live. Um, and the thing about improv that's so nice is we can make our own roles. Like I could just be on stage and get to exist and like live in my body and be Asian and, you know, not be relegated to being just a prostitute or a dead person or a nurse, which were like the only rooms yeah. that I felt were available. So, um, but I, I was doing improv. I finished like an improv class and I walk out into midtown Manhattan. At the time I saw this billboard with a certain white actress who shall not be named uh, in a role that was made for an Asian person. And it just, that was the point. That was the point where I just, just like, okay, this needs to change now. Um, and that's my moment. Yeah. That's, um, it's, uh, we all have that few times where we're just, we can remember back and, and it's like a switch. Mm -hmm. What was yours? Um, I'm glad you asked. Um, so I had been dating um, predominantly or trying to date predominantly white women in my 20s. And I did. And when I say try, it was like an effort, right? It wasn't like, you know, I think the thing about dating is like, you should just fall in love with people you like, right? And it's hard to remove this idea of social constructs because we're not aware of it. We're not aware that we're programmed with this stuff. So I'd been dating all, you know, uh, a series of white women and- I Okay, so when you say you were trying, does that mean that you were actively seeking out white women? Like saying like, I'm gonna date white women or were you gravitating towards white women without realizing why? Both. I wasn't okay. realizing why. And at 32, I wanted to settle down because I'd gone through enough iterations of this and it was getting tiring and I wanted to settle down and I was sitting with two directors, film directors, Hamtran and Stefan Gogger. And we were at a coffee shop and I was dating casually getting to know two, two women at the time as a white woman and a Vietnamese woman. And I was telling my, my, my Niao crew at the time. Mm -hmm. And they were like, there's something wrong with you. Cause it doesn't sound like, you are okay with just liking people for who they are. You have this like weird lens that you have on with white women. You don't sound like you're even attracted to this white girl. You're, you're really attracted to this Asian, this Vietnamese female, but you're not giving it the justice. And then Obama, Michelle Obama and Barack Obama were giving, Barack Obama was a Senator giving his sort of speech 
to run for president. And he was on the TV screen right behind me. And then Ham turns over, he says, look, what's wrong with that? That would just flipped everything for me at that. I was like, wait a minute, that's a powerful black couple. Look, what's wrong with being with the Vietnamese woman? And the Vietnamese woman at the time was dating was a doctor. Mm-hmm. Wait, and can I ask you just for clarification yeah. when he said, what's wrong with that? It was like a rhetorical question, meaning like there's like there's nothing wrong with that. Like these two black, black people yeah, together. People. Um, yes, yeah. they're okay. powerful people and they're together. Ken, what is wrong with you? What, what What's going on in your brain that you have an issue with dating a powerful Vietnamese woman? It is a, a doctor. And I'm like. I couldn't even see the intelligence and the beauty of the person that I was dating or trying to make a decision. I only saw like, if it ain't white, it ain't right. Right. That was like sort of my mantra at the time. And uh, then it really set me off in this path to really explore. So I ended up dating the Vietnamese doctor um, and really working through. And then I had a point where I'd go to a, like a, you know, I didn't, venture out to the 626 area too much because it was all Chinese and Vietnamese. And the first, one of the first dates that we had, we sat at this Hainan chicken place and it was all Chinese and Vietnamese. And I felt such a sense of shame being there with the Vietnamese woman. It was so dark. Yeah. So the whole meal, I couldn't enjoy it. I was like, wow, I regressed. Because mm, you're still feeling that you're still feeling that like internalized racism, even in that moment. In that moment, yeah. Oh, I was just starting my journey at that point. It was like almost twenty years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, was... I think there's so many of us have had to, and continue to have to untangle that internalized racism. You know, it's something that's just in the air. It's in the culture, and and I don't mean like Asian American culture, or Asian culture, but it's in like like racism and white supremacy is everywhere. This like idea of status associated with specific races um, is something that we all grew up with consciously or subconsciously. So I think that's just the work that we need to always be doing. But I'm like now to the extreme where I have to correct myself. I I can't be going the other way too far because I have to just appreciate for human beings for who they are. You know, I really do have to put that in check because, you know, doing this work, I've gone the other way, which is, you know, Vietnamese first. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's not healthy either, right? We should just be able to really be free of these racial divides and just fall in love with people who just turn us on, whether it's men loving men women loving women it should just be there should be no social contract you should be just be really aware of this stuff you, you should know? all be having sex with each other and <laughs> everybody everyone should be having sex you're yeah. you're you're as greedy as i am i Great. love it wonderful <laughs> yeah i mean I, I really believe that you know uh i really believe that um whoever turns us on we should be able to really analyze that and take like a like a, a step back and kind of see what we're separate of what our ego and our social constructs define and really analyze why do i like this person so much why am i so attracted to him and hopefully we can remove these weird lenses that we're programmed into agreed 100 <laughs> percent. 
So where did you grow up? Um, so I grew up in the Bay Area, but not like fun Bay Area, Bay Area, California, San Francisco Bay Area. So I've, I've learned now I can't just say the Bay Area because apparently there's more than one Bay in the world. Um, but yeah, I grew up in California. I was born in Vietnam and then came to the U.S. as like one of the last batches of refugees in the 90s um, and grew up in Concord, California, which is famous for its water park and being the birthplace of our beloved national treasure, Tom Hanks. Uh, but the thing with Concord is that like when, when people hear that I'm from San Francisco Bay Area, they often think like, oh, cool, fun, so liberal. Everyone loved gay people. And it's like, no, 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 no. Concord was one of the uh, considered purple counties at the time. So it was pretty mixed uh, politically, but in 2008, voted against gay marriage. Wasn't a fun place to grow up in that aspect. Uh, and yeah, so that was where I grew up. It's changed a lot now, though. The Bay yeah. Area has changed a lot. So now there's like a ton of Asian food restaurants in Concord. But like when I grew up, there wasn't a lot of Asian people yeah. there at all. Um, it was mostly white and Latino. And like I was one of the few Asian kids. I think I knew one other Vietnamese kid at school. Her name was Ngoc Linh, and she said Ngoc Linh. And that was her. That was it. And me. And how did you get out to Brooklyn? Um, I came out to Brooklyn in 2013. So I've been out here for almost 10 years now. Almost a New Yorker now. Uh, yeah, um, I have to be careful who I say that around. I, I asked that question one time when I was walking in Manhattan, where I was just like, hmm, like, am I a New Yorker now? And this woman rushed past me. It was just like, you're not a New Yorker unless you're born here. I was like, okay. No, I heard it's the decade, right? I, th I thought the decade mark is when it makes you a New Yorker. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting, like, what defines a New Yorker, right? Because, like, on one hand, there are so many people who move here just to leave. Like they come here for their like Rumspringa from Ohio and then they go back to, to have a family. Wait, wait, I'll stop you there. What is that word? Oh, Rumspringa? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, I know what it is. From... I just think it's a funny okay. ass word. I love Rumspringa. Uh, it comes from the Amish. So like if you grew up in the Amish community, I think when you're 18 or something, you get a year away from from like living the Amish life and you get to go live with you know the English as they call them and live your wild life. And the idea is that you'll hate it and you'll come back. Um, but yeah, so like people come to New York and then they leave. Uh, and then there are a lot of people who are born and raised in New York, many of which are being pushed out of New York, right? Because of gentrification and, and high costs and things. So a lot of people are really protective around that term. And then at the same time, they're so many immigrants like a lot of our like you know just like everywhere you go um as, you know especially a lot of poc again like our cab drivers people working at the bodegas etc like i mean you know our nail salons etc um and people wouldn't deny them as being new yorkers so you know uh, when i think of uh our community of artists out here in la and new york and we fight so strongly for POC representation, all this stuff. And I know that there's a echo chamber on the other side 
of the Vietnamese community is like, just work your ass off, make a lot of money, and you'll be fine. You'll be respected in America. Why is it so damn important for us to really fight for representation when we're such a tiny part of the population of the United States, especially the Vietnamese? I mean, there's like four to 5% Asian in the United States, and we're like a tiny fraction of that. But why is it so important to have diversity when we're a tiny part in your mind? Yeah, I I think rule of the majority always has its danger and complications. I mean, if if the majority had its way in the 1800s, slavery would still exist in the U.S. Like very bad. We don't want that, uh, <laughs> right? Everyone can agree, slavery bad. Um, I mean, as for representation in terms of services provided, like in terms of very practical things, representation is important because. Um, let's talk about the census, right? The census helps the government figure out where to allocate resources. And if Asians are only 4.5% or something, then we need to have services. We need to know what the Asian community as a whole needs. And we need to know how much of the budget we need. But even within the Asian American community, there's so much diversity. And there's been a fight to disaggregate the data so that we're separating even the very broad term of Asian by ethnicity and, you know, where Vietnamese, Southeast Asians, and how Southeast Asians came to this country is very different than how East Asians, for the most part, entered this country, many of them. I mean, um, you know, a lot of the first East Asians who came to the U.S. came during um, the gold rush era, right? Um, but then after that, there after that, basically, like in the 70s, there were a lot of visas that were given to other East Asians and South Asians for um, for like skilled labor. Uh, so these people were coming in with um, a, like higher education, yeah. coming in for higher paying jobs. And then for Southeast Asians, a lot of us came through as refugees, um, as a product of war. And because of that, like we have a really diverse set of skills. Um, a lot of us came in um, without being promised high paying jobs at all. And so if you actually look at the data on poverty, high school education, college education and health of Southeast Asians, including Vietnamese, they're actually much more comparable with um, the black communities or the uh, Hispanic or Latino communities. And so, when people, for instance, talk about the model minority or the idea of like high earning, highly educated Asians, what they're often talking about is East Asians. And if we only allocate resources based on those numbers, then we're leaving behind so many other people who actually need these services. Um, so, I mean, that is a very practical reason why representation and counting the numbers and disaggregating data matters. Um, and then also, I just want people to see me and like, see how fantastic I am. Like, hello. All hello. right. So we're going to jump right into this next uh, module here is you, and then we'll get into like the process of how you got there, but I want to segue into being on the sympathizer. Um, okay. which is a TV um, show uh, done by HBO from the book uh, written by Vitan Nguyen. And I understand that from the very top levels all the way down, uh, 
at the above the line, which is all of the people that are on the creative side, there was very few Vietnamese people on the teams. You're one of the few mm-hmm. of the people of, I think you're the only one uh, of the v- Vietnamese writers on the writing room or there's- We had, we had Megan Wong. Right, who which is, is a quarter, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, I'll let her, talk about her identity she's not in this room unfortunately i i personally don't like to like percentage wise people's mm-hmm. ethnicity or identity um i know she you know, she is very embedded in the vietnamese community now oh i but... didn't know that um, my apologies megan i've never megan, met megan so i don't... love you um but uh so so she was there in the room um but still even then like we have very different experiences um and with how we identify with our vietnamese culture um for instance like i was born in vietnam um like everyone in my direct family was impacted by the war my dad was a prisoner in a communist prison camp after the war um and like we're a family of refugees right and like megan's experience is really different um, and there should never be like one person who is the voice of all people. Um, so, I mean, in the room, that was a little tricky. Uh, but in terms of like the production as a whole, like ultimately this comes from Viet Thanh Nguyen's book. So it is the story that um, a Vietnamese person put forth and there like i i always want there to be more representation it's something that i'm always going to fight for everywhere from the top like um you know i would have like i would have loved to see what a version alternate universe version of the story where um different like where where let's say it was all vietnamese people who worked on it right that's what Um, i'm saying i mean like right i'm not even just all Vietnamese how about just more than one or two <laughs> more than one. I mean more so I, I'll say that there were Vietnamese people involved in almost every team not every team almost every team there would be one or two of us which you know we were a small we were a little family on set um and something that I really valued about that experience was that we were all we always had each other's backs like we were we we were like the Vietnamese mafia from day one. Let's be real. Uh, doing all sorts of illegal things. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't do that. Uh, for the record, for legal reasons, we but were the all writing though. Level. But the writing is the cultural infusion yeah. in the story. You would think. I don't know if you're at liberty to talk about this, or I don't want to get you in any, any hot water. But <laughs> just, I mean, this is out in the news. I mean, this yeah. is you could read about it in the trades. I mean, we we just know that there's you and Megan. On, on the team of, I mean, how big is the staff? The um, staff? I think it was, it's seven writers overall. Um, and it's, I will say this, I try to focus on where we were. Uh, you know, where we were was that we had all these Vietnam War stories being told only by white people, like to the point where I like can't watch any other Vietnam War film, right? Um, we had yeah, these these stories where we're just again prostitutes. Man, we're always prostitutes. Um, prostitutes, uh, dead soldiers, 
the occasional gang member. And so this, this to me is progress. It is not a hundred percent, you know, like, like I, the worst thing to me though, would be to create something where in 2023, we're just like, okay, we're done. Like we're at the pinnacle of Vietnamese storytelling. There's no more progress to be made. Um, and, started yet. and what was that? <laughs> I don't even think we started yet. There's no, like we're scratching the surface literally. Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, we, that's like, that is part of it is mm -hmm. like just, um, starting to lay the the foundation and I look at other you know I look at other um projects and and one of the things that I did recently was I I was reading the Rise book I think it's like Rise a pop culture history of Asian America and again I saw these things of like okay like we had the Yellow Ranger we had Rufio you know we had uh, you know, Simon Reed, who did a lot of action films. And these were all people who started paving the way. And um, I'm happy to be just one more stone in on this path. And uh, I'm excited for the kid who's in the Midwest, who's going to see the story and see that there are some Vietnamese names involved in this production. And who's going to look and say like, hey, I can do better. Because you know what, like, just like my villain origin story of getting pissed off at people who were not telling the story just the way I wanted to, I'm like, let's make that kid just a little angry. No, <laughs> like, you know, there's like, let that kid want to do better. Mm -hmm. That's great. There are quite a few Vietnamese writers in LA mm -hmm. and in the pool of professional writers that could have come on the project, but people like, like Juan Lee, she's been on the podcast. Um, she's been writing for a long time. She was unavailable. So I get that, right. I get that kind of unavailability, but there's so many writers in LA that it just boggles my mind. And I'm sure it's not just the sympathizer, but I'm um, other Vietnamese projects that why does it require others to be yeah. in that room of creation? And that's I, mean, I hear you. I hear you. I would love to be in a position where I get to make hiring decisions. You know, it's it's a dream of mine to have a production company one day and to be paving like to be creating these opportunities for more writers, actors, directors. Um now I I don't want to cross the line here, but is it because we are not as good? Like, I don't think so. I mean, I would never, I would never say that. I, right, no, no, I, no. Right, I, I wouldn't, I, I'm not saying that. I'm just and saying. And fuck anyone who says that. I can right. swear. Yeah, can you swear. absolutely fucking swear. Okay. But I'm saying, are we perceived as not being as good? Not, I'm not saying that we are not as good. I think there's really good writers out there, but are we perceived yeah. as not being as good? Or is it more of a, like a nepotism? Like, I got to get my boy, my girl on and, you know, we got to put yeah. my people on the team. And so it becomes sort of like a more of a, you know, convenience. I mean, I, I can't speak for the decision makers on this project of why they put together the room that they put together or why they put together the the team that they put together for this entire show. Um, I, I will say that if people believe in a meritocracy, right, if people believe that, hey, like, 
the industry or the world rewards people who are good and talented. And then they look at a pool and they say, well, there just aren't that many Vietnamese people who are talented or like there, there aren't that many Vietnamese people here. Like then that means that they're saying Vietnamese people aren't talented enough or, and, and they're uh, if, if, if people argue for meritocracy and they're okay with the numbers where they are, uh, I'm just going to say it. That's racist. <laughs> uh, you know, if people say that there's meritocracy and they're okay with like, you know, some single, single digit percentage of people at these big companies or um, in the industry as being people of color, then they're saying that they're not good enough. Um, and they need to fix that. And and I'll say one of the things that we run into, uh, I think in all industries, and I've seen this being even in tech, for instance, so I used to work in tech, but um, you know, we we have people sometimes who come in who they don't necessarily have the experience uh that white people have, but it's because they weren't given mm. the opportunity to have that experience, right? And so um that's that's like a big problem and they're not going to get experience unless they're given experience or given the opportunity to have experience like like you have actors who've never set foot into an audition room before because they weren't given the opportunity to even get auditions so how are they going to have that practice and then have that same sense of comfort um but one thing that I find so frustrating in hiring in general and I'm not just talking about this industry is that people talk about like like people don't take into account how important personal experience and personal knowledge is to a job to doing a job well um and like a classic example of that is whoever decided to load up like there there were like what there was like one or two female astronauts on this one space flight and the people who decided to outfit that space flight gave them like a thousand tampons or something like that for a hundred day flight and it's just like they just it's like you're doing a bad job because you don't understand how menstruation works um and having the experience or knowledge or understanding of of people who are underrepresented that itself is of value so for instance like you could have a less experienced Vietnamese writer come on board but they bring with them a breadth of knowledge and experience that maybe is not the honed writing techniques of someone who's um who's who's been in the industry for a long time but then you're gonna have the like industry guy who's been writing for 50 years who's like why can't we say oriental you know so like you need a mix of that can i ask you god i don't know what kind of nda rules that you're bounded by so you just tell me if you if you can't answer it okay because i don't want to put you in hot water but at the same time like i'm deathly curious yeah. about that experience, there has to be some pushback coming from the, you know, the, the voice, your voice of, yo, you got this wrong. I know technically you'd have to do it this way because it fits in a narrative structure, but you got it wrong. And then 
so was there any of that or any strong sort of like bumping heads uh your experience yeah I and mean, i'll say that on every like the reason i got into this industry was because i thought my voice was important and i'm always going to use my voice and i'm always going to speak up and be the squeaky wheel about things that i disagree with um, and I'm going to take that risk. Sometimes I think, oh, maybe I'll be blacklisted because people will be annoyed with me. Um, so far, not yet, knock on wood. Um, but I mean, I'm always I'm always going to voice my opinion. I always have. I always will. And something that I saw, again, with our small and mighty team of Vietnamese people on the sympathizers that people were not afraid to speak up about what issues they had or things that they thought. Um, and, a, and a cool thing actually about our project was that there were so many different Vietnamese people from all parts of the diaspora. And a lot of us had different points of view. Mm -hmm. We did not always agree, mm -hmm. but we would speak up, right? And have a conversation about that. And I, I think that's so beautiful that none of us had to be the sole representative right. of Vietnamese culture. Um, I mean, and, and the book and the show itself has so many different viewpoints like that's at the heart of it is that they're the sympathizer sympathizes with different points of views. Yeah. Um, that's the whole point of the book. Exactly. Exactly. So there was always dialogue. And the thing about all TV shows is that they are a team project. And not every person on a team gets to have their say all the time. And that is something to accept and make peace with. <laughs> you are so <laughs> damn politically on point. You could be the next next uh, White House press secretary. You're so, you. you answered it really well, really well. I was like watching for that. And I'm not here to to, to, to like pull You're any so good. <laughs> I'm not here to pull any gotcha moments. I just, you know, I just want the tea, right? Like, uh, I just you want got to... the tea. <laughs> Great job, man. Yeah. I got the okay. tea. Yeah, no, no, no pun intended. How did you get to the writing room at the sympathizer? I I find that mind blowing because, you know, there's a lot of again, there's a lot of talent in LA, Vietnamese writers. Um, you're relatively unheard of, right? I mean, yeah. you've done a I and you know I know about the grind that you've done because and we'll talk about that in a little bit too but how did you get to the room that's like it's like a a very incredible feat yeah it's wild when I talk about when people are like tea how do I break into the industry I'm like I don't know there's no formula everyone does it differently mm -hmm. um I will say I'm going to I'm going to shortcut some things. At some point I wrote a bunch of stuff and then I got into a fellowship and um the Hillman Grad Fellowship that's run by Lena Waith changed my life. Uh I have matching tattoos with my fellow mentees. Uh it's not a cult, but I love it. So, but so within Hillman Grad uh we we're supposed to develop a pilot script. And I was between two ideas, one of which was like more of like a dramedy that was at the time more in line with like things I'd written. I knew it would be easy for me to write. And the other idea was an idea that I was afraid to tackle because I was like, mm, I don't know. 
this might be too hard. Um, I wanted to write a dark comedy rom-com set in a Vietnamese communist prison camp. And I was like, I don't know. There's a lot of ways to mess that up. Um, but it was how my parents met. So my parents met when my dad was a prisoner in a prison camp. And I remember when people would share their stories of how their parents met, which was like, oh, they met at a college party or like, oh, they were next door neighbors. And they're like, T, how'd your parents meet? I told them that story. And people would say, tell us the story. Well, uh, so my parents met when my dad was a prisoner in a prison camp and my mom was visiting her brother who was a fellow prisoner in a prison camp. So uh, the prisoners were essentially like kidnapped for a few years and like no one knew where they were, but then eventually they were allowed to have visitors. So during that time, my mom started visiting her brother and my mom was this like man-hating feminist at the time. Like literally she was like, I hate men. They're useless. Uh, I never want to get married. I'd rather be a nun. And she was like 26 or something, which was a spinster. Yep. At the time, right. Not- yeah. Uh, people were like, what's wrong with you? And then my dad was this playboy who, from what I've heard, really, you know, had the ladies lined up. And so, but you know, it's harder to be a playboy in a prison camp for <laughs> obvious reasons. Uh, but they had very different stories of how they met. So my mom's, my mom's like, well, okay, my dad's account was like, we met and she immediately fell in love with me. I'm so charming. Uh, and my mom's account was like, I saw your dad. He looked so sickly. He looked like he was about to die. And I pitied him. So I gave him some food. And it, like the, the very the like the gulf between their stories just always felt comedic to me and the mm-hmm. way that they told their story had a lot of love and joy in it especially when I was younger like it started off almost feeling like an adventure like something that was really fun and exciting and only as I got older did it get darker and darker and darker um and the pilot that I ended up writing I ended up deciding to write that I think follows that a lot in that it started like it comes with a lot of heart and fun and humor. I mean, there are jokes, people laugh reading it. And then it does not turn away from the pain and difficulty of the re-education camp. So I wrote this pilot that when it got into the hands of people, like there's just, there's there's nothing out there that's like it. I mean, I would love it. Like send me someone's frigging rom-com about a prison camp in Vietnam. like. And I will be excited to read it. But like that was that was just like a really fresh script. And um, I had been a big fan of The Sympathizer. I'd like read the book when it came out. I've stalked Viet Thanh Nguyen on every social media thing. I've read his other works, his op-eds. So when The Sympathizer was announced as a show at that time, I was repped and I sent the article to my manager and I said, like, put me on this project. Like I need to be on this project. And he said well it's not like it's not staffing yet so we'll see what we can do um and then months go by and eventually he was like oh it's it's staffed like it's staffing now like and they want to meet with you so I had an interview with immediately with a showrunner Don McKellar and with execs from A24 and Team Downey um to be a staff writer and 
from what they've said, they loved me. They wanted me on the job. But at the time, I'd never been in a room before, not as a writer's assistant, not as a writer. I was remember like fresh baby. Let, let's stop right there. That's fucking crazy and unheard of. I, it's just who does that like that? Who becomes who just gets in the room, becomes a, like a staff writer without going through well, the chain? So there are there are hoops. OK, so they had me. They wanted me to be on the thing. But the next day I got a call from my manager who said, well, HBO doesn't want you to be a staff writer because you've never had room experience. So here's what they can give you. Like they're willing to put you in as a writer's assistant. And if there's a season two, you can come in as a staff writer. I was disappointed. I was also like, ooh, am I just entering a room full of white men? Uh, I was, I did not. The room was much more diverse than I thought it would be, which was nice. Um, but so I joined as a writer's assistant. Oh. But from day one, you know, Don had me pitching ideas. Like I was, I was nervous too. I was reluctant to because I'd always been told that, like, as a writer's assistant, don't speak unless spoken to. And he told me not to do that. He was like, your voice is very valuable in the room. It probably helped that I was like the only person born in Vietnam in the room. Uh, but so I was pitching every day from day one and I contributed a lot to the show, not just in terms of like historical or cultural things, but also story points, theme, character. And um, and then the room wrapped. Um, and as they were heading into production and I had been like moving on with my life, um, Don approached me several times in different capacities. So one, at one point he was like, oh, like I might need a showrunner's assistant in LA. Like, do you want like, oh, if only you could be my assistant. And I told him like, no, Don, I'm a writer. At that point, I did not have a writing job, but I told him, I was like, no, I'm a writer. Like I'm not working for you in this capacity again. But then he'd come out and he'd ask like, oh, do you want to be a cultural consultant? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And it was never a writer's role. And I always said, like, no, Don, I'm a, I'm a writer. Uh, and then finally, he he like he was like, I have another job for you. I was like, Don, no, I've told you. He was like, T, it's a writing job. It's a you'd be a writer. Come on. Um, so the thing was that they're shooting. They were about to start shooting now in L.A. And um, basically with. With the pace of the show and with everything going on and like there's so notes coming in as there often are for scripts and, and things needing to be finished up, um, Don and director Park Chan-wook, they wanted more support on the show. And so they wanted a writer who could come to be on set as well as help deal with notes and revisions. Um, they wanted a writer that they could trust and that writer that they chose was me. So then for four months, I was on set every single day, um, swapping with Don, helping with like dialogue changes, line changes, um, covering set, helping figure out notes stuff. Um, I, you know, like made revisions, etc. So that is how I joined as a staff writer. And then I just oh. came back to Brooklyn two weeks ago. Wow. What a great story. What a really heartwarming story for me. Because, yeah, like I said, relatively unknown. Nobody had heard, you know, none of us have heard of you out, out here in L.A. And it's like literally bursting into this onto the scene. 
and you. now it makes sense into your fold i know no one had heard of me because i've been stranded alone isolated in new york um it's been so nice to meet all the vietnamese people in the industry though and in la like it's such a supportive family it's so nice like I've never been around so many Vietnamese creatives mm -hmm. and there there are people like you or Jess Vu, Jenny um, Trang Le, who, who put in so much effort to craft community and to actively build this sort of family. And I'm, I'm really thankful for you all. And to meet you throughout the last few months while you're uh, on the project, um, is another thing where Jess Vu, Jenny Chang Lei, all these community people, to see somebody like you with the the, it, there, there's a brightness to you when you when we're in person. There's a there's a a sort of magnetism to who you are, and it makes our job much easier to do it year after year after year because now we know that there's satellite branches of the Vietnamese in Brooklyn, Australia, Paris. Where, so we know that when we receive and accept here in LA, that there is a reciprocation that's happening much further out and reverberating. And there's always a home base for the Vietnamese and entertainment in LA. Yeah, it's nice because I, like, I'm based out of New York. I love New York. I'm too afraid to call myself a New Yorker because I don't want to be assassinated on the street. But I tell people I do want to die in New York, right? Um, and so when I did four months out in LA, I had my reservations about being out there for so long. Mm -hmm. Like, obviously, I was going to do it because, you know, good for the career, but I was worried. Um, and now having really built that community, feeling like I have Vietnamese family out there in the industry, um, people who I enjoy being around. Yeah. Um, and really care for, you know, got some true, like I've made some true like ride or dies out there. Uh, now I have something to look forward to for the next time I'm out there. Like I'm excited also because I've missed out on some fun nights I've heard have been happening and it makes me really sad. So promise next time you're out here, I'll make fun for you. Oh yeah. <laughs> now I know that in order to have gotten, um, even before Sympathizer, before all this stuff, there's an extreme amount of writing that you have to do to get to fellowships or to get to grants, to get to any leveling up from being a wedding photographer or somebody in tech to make this lateral move. It requires some really genuine heavy lifting because um, I've tried it before for many, 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 many years and it's not easy. It's not easy at all. It's like, uh, for me, thinking about going to the gym consistently for two years and not missing a day and not just giving 70%, 60% at it, but this is giving 110% at lifting very, very heavy weights. And not just doing that, but doing it very well to where you hit the ball out of the park. And I read some of your posts, and I know that like in one year you had written so much and you had so much material that you were able to send it all out to contests and stuff like that. How did you know, or did you know that it required that much reps to get to where you needed to go? Yeah. 
you know, I had my villain origin story, but it's not like, so that was around hmm, 2017, I would say, when that like little spark of an idea came to me. Um, but it wasn't like I thought, okay, what? I'm going to jump straight. Hmm? Tw- what year was that? I'm sorry. 2017. So 2017 was the spark. Five years ago. So so 2017 was the spark, but even then I wasn't like, I'm going to make it in film and TV because I still had my doubts. And I, I thought, like at that time, if I wanted to see people who looked like me, like people who are Asian or queer, et cetera, like I would be just watching YouTube. So at first I thought, okay, well, I'm going to make content on the internet. And that was kind of the ceiling that I had for myself. Um, and I was doing improv and I started doing sketch comedy and I was like, I was writing things and I was creating things, but I didn't have that bigger dream of entering the actual industry because I still I had these limits um and then on a whim in 2019 when was that like end of 2018 going into 2019 there's this idea for a pilot that I had that I again like I just wanted to write it um and I ended up co-writing that with this person that I knew through improv Lee Hubilia who's a fantastic actor um and writer, uh, and we co-wrote that together. Um, so that was in 2019. We co-wrote that together, and I was also in my first writers group that was run by um, playwright and co-EP of Evil and um, uh, Oren Squire, who is a queer black man who ran this writers room and invited people in. Um, And I was just going to write this thing for fun, but seeing someone who was queer and POC, uh, who actually made it in the industry and who said like, hey, this is possible. Like there's a career, like you can build a career in this. People build a career in this. Like having that sort of mentor say to me, like this is possible was the first time I realized that maybe it was possible, but even still, entering like doing any of this I always just thought like it's a long shot like it's not gonna happen it's not gonna happen and so with like the basis of failure already as like my ground zero and being fine with that it made me willing to take risks so in 2019 Lee and I finished writing this pilot together and and I had not written my own pilot I'd never written my own pilot um but for some reason I quit my job at the end of 2019 because I was like I'm going to pursue this full time, uh, which is like wild, but I was working in tech and had tech money, which was helpful. Yeah. Um, and, and it was also because I had been like battling with myself for so long on like whether to do the, whether to do the practical thing or whether to do the thing that I wanted to do in my heart. And I read one of my old journals that I wrote when I was in high school 10 years ago when so in high school, in my senior year, I applied to all of these art schools because at the time I wanted to be a fine artist. So I applied to all these art schools. So much of my journal was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be an artist. I'm gonna be an artist. I'm going to art school. And then you flip. There was no segue to this, but there was just an entry that was like, well, now I'm going to UCLA to study psychology. And I saw, like, I saw my little younger self just like give up their babe, like their dream to do the practical thing. And for so much of what I'd done in the next 10 years was just continue to do the practical thing because I was afraid to take the leap. 
And I was like, I can't keep having this conversation with myself for the rest of my life. So like, I'm just going to try, I have this money saved up for this like amount of time. And I'm going to try so that at least then I'll know that I tried at some point in my life and then I'll move on. And then I quit my job and then I had like a spiral where I was like, you're not doing anything with your life. (laughs) What, what the fuck, what the fuck did you just do? This is 2019. Yeah. End of 2019, like December, I was like in like mental health crisis mode because I was like, T, you fucked up. And then in 2020, the pandemic hit and and then no one was doing anything with their lives, which was really freeing for me because suddenly I'm like, oh, great, you're doing just as well as everyone else, which is <laughs> nothing. No, no one's doing anything. Um, so then in 2020, I wrote three pilots, which like, that's just what happened. Holy shit. Because I was suddenly free of, again, like that fear of not being productive, like, it's the pressure like my demon is when I put a lot of pressure on myself to succeed and the times that I do best are the times where I accept and am open to failure and I'm not afraid and so I wasn't afraid and in 2020 I wrote three pilots and the next year I got into two fellowships and got my writer's assistant job 2021 was wild Russ's history I mean that's incredible I mean it's takes te- people 10 years to get easily to get where you are, have gotten or they don't make it at all. Mm-hmm. There's people out here 15 years. They don't make it at all. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not luck though. You know, your situation is not luck. Your situation is like, um, purely grinding. You know, I think there's a lot of, you know, intelligence, you know, uh, you know, being a writer is not easy. You have to be very smart, just like comedians or anybody in the arts. If you're not smart, you can't really put it all together and figure this stuff out. So this is not luck. This is really just um, almost fate. You know, you quit your job and you're like having this mental issue in 2019 and 2020, um, the pandemic hits and yeah. You know, I want to go back to the concentration um, comedy. Um, I I can see it as a stage play. No, well, it could work. Really... It's a it's a really um, it's a what is what's the word? It's a really it's a finite space, right? You know, right? It can <laughs> happen in one room. It feels like. A, a couple of different rooms. You're right. I totally could. I could totally make this a stage you play. Could totally make this a stage play. I would love to see it because it sounds like a fucking kick ass stage play. Oh my cool. god! I like what you're saying. I'm like, I don't. I don't fuck waiting for it to become like uh, some TV or you know feature film. Let's just. I want to watch this as a stage production. Yeah. And you, I, you know, funny. I'd never thought of that. I'd never. Never thought of that before. As, I love it. As, you're, as you're telling me the story, I'm like, oh my God, I could just see it. You just see it um, unfolding on the stage. Yeah. You want to produce it? You want to do that? <laughs> yes, we could talk after. Okay, let's wow. talk after. Wow, wow, wow. Amazing. I love that. I've already cast it, by the way. I know it's going to be. What are we waiting for? Now, uh, <laughs> Another really big thing that you've done. Oh my God. 
Is this Michael Grant? That was you, right? Oh, the micro game. Well, yes, I thought you said Michael Grant, and I was like, I don't know who that is. I don't know who that man is. The micro Grant. The micro yeah. Grant. That was cool. I, I read that, and it's just like this small act of giving, right? It's a $500 sort of scholarship, if you will, and yeah. you're like, I'm going to give it to two people, and then it just poured in, and everybody's making uh, these donations, and it actually became like, five times more than you set out to do. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So the micro grant, the idea first came to me, I was inspired by this other micro grant. I'd never heard the term micro grant before by this um, production company called Black Eyed Rabbit. Um, that's run by two friends of mine, Matt and Marin. And uh, they had this grant that was $500 to two black writers. That's what they were going to do. I mean, and it's what they did. So like two black writers each would get $500. And I was like, wow, micro grant, never thought of that. Like I could help people with a portion of my money. That's not, not like $10,000 because they don't really yeah. have $10,000 to give. Um, and so, I mean, even before that, so like one of the people who's always inspired me so much was Lena Waithe. You know, I love Lena even before I got into Hillman grad, but something that I always thought she did really well was, and I'd watched her since she came on to, um, oh my God, why am I blinking on this? Anyway, basically when she first made her splash, I've been watching her. And the thing that I noticed about her is that every step of the way in her career, she has opened doors for other people like she's mm. laid down ladders like she's not the kind of person who is like once she's made it she's just like well I got mine you know she she worked on creating um opportunities for other people and in one of our first conversations I asked like hey like like I really admire you for doing this like what can I do at this point like I like I want to be able to help people as well and she's like you can start now like you don't have to you don't have to wait until you've made it. So like me at the time, I just got into a fellowship. I'd never gotten a job or anything. She said, you know, you can start now by talking to people who haven't gotten to where you are. Um, you know, you can offer advice for people who want it. You can read people's scripts and give notes. And, um, you know, you can like create spaces and community. So I've really followed her lead on that, uh, on that front. And, um, so when I first, I got my first job, which was, we were the lucky ones. I was like, wow, like I'm getting some money to do this job. And so what I want to do is give some of that away. Um, because, and I know like something that happens so much is that it's hard for people to continue even pursuing this dream because they're struggling with paying their bills or you know, people who want like mental health care who can't access it. And um, I wanted to just give money to people and let them figure out what they needed it for. That'll help them continue this job without like micromanaging what they do with that. So I, I thought of a number that hurt just a little bit for me to give, where it's like, it's like not a comfortable number, but it's not going to like destroy you. Like, like, yeah, it's not going to destroy me, but I was like, like, like I had a number and then I was like, mm, let's do a little bit more. Um, 
and I, I put it on my Instagram, which like I have like, I don't know, like 1600 followers or something like not a ton. And I, I wanted it to be for trans and gender non-conforming writers because like I've, I've struggled to find other writers like that um, in developing my own work. And I know so many trans and gender non-conforming writers um, do struggle with things like finding work at all or healthcare, et cetera. Um, so I targeted to that and I put out a post on Instagram that was like, hi, I'm T-Ho and I'm doing this thing. And I, I wanted it to be clear that this was just like a, a human being who was doing this. Like, I'm not like, like, I'm not an organization. Like, you're not going to be able to write this off for your taxes. Um, so, well, I just expected it to be me giving away money, but then people saw that and I had a producer reach out to me and say, hey, can I add on to your fund? Whoa. And I was like, okay, sure. Like, you don't really know me that well, but I'll take your money for this, I guess, like for, for other people. Um, and then I had friends reach out. Um, I had people I hadn't spoken to in years reach out. Then I started getting like more, like people who who I'd never heard of, like people who'd never heard of me, who are, were now suddenly sending me money because they were inspired. They were like, wow, I never thought about how a person can just do this but it's really inspiring me to do this one day for my own too. And also here's $50, you know, people are adding on small amounts. And then, and then one morning I woke up and someone had found my Venmo and Venmoed me a thousand dollars. And I was like, who is this? Is this a scam? And I looked it up and it was a showrunner who hadn't, I'd never spoken to um, who had tracked me down and decided to give, me a thousand dollars for this grant um so it got like bigger than I expected and it was originally for two writers who would get five hundred dollars each and we had so much money coming in that it ended up being three writers twenty four hundred each two thousand four hundred around that much and so dollars twenty four forty one I think that's what I read okay yeah wow you remember the number yeah I mean and and um yeah, so the money went to three writers who are wonderful and, you know, we've remained in contact in other ways. Um, I am, and I also thought about like how many writers can I kind of like emotionally support throughout <laughs> their career? Like I didn't want to just like drop the money and run. Like I wanted it to be like, I'm also here as a resource for you um, as you continue your journey. So yeah, it really blew up. It was awesome. And I would encourage yeah. anyone to do it like and I would also at the same time be wary of sending people you don't know money I don't know it's complicated trust you have to trust the person and, you, and they need receipts so I like had money that was given to me and then I was always very transparent about where it was going at all times yeah as what's happening there's something to the giving uh something in the quantum mechanic world about giving. It just seems that the more people give, the more they receive. It just seems that way all the time. Yeah. It's actually, there's this um, Buddhist concept of dana, which is, you know, giving and the, you know, I mean, I know there's like this bigger thing of like karma and karmic reasons for giving, but there's also a very practical reason that I always thought was interesting was like when you give money, or when you give anything, 
you realize that you have more than you realize. Like you realize that you mm -hmm. can live with more than you realize and that you have enough. Um, and so in the times where I like stretched myself a little bit, I've also like grasped less for things and held on to things a little less tightly and therefore feared losing things yeah. less. So it's also in a way a selfish practice to give because it helps me deal with the world. Um, so yeah, I think, I mean, you know, don't give so much that you destroy yourself, but I think people can afford to give a little bit more. Just, you know, get to that like moment where you're like, ooh, that's a, that's a little bit more than I thought I can handle. And then you realize that you can handle more than you thought you could handle. Yeah. Now, as we wrap up, um, you have mentioned that, uh, you, you know, is it okay to ask questions or something like that, you know, and you have asked me questions. So is there anything that you want to ask me before we hop off? And I have one last question, but I wanted to open it up to you because I never opened it up. I mean, I, yeah. I like ask questions, but I wanted to open it up to you because you seem very inquisitive. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I, the thing, Kenneth, that I'm most curious about is of your foray into the occult with Ouija boards and this time of your life. I don't know if you want to talk about it, yeah, but would love to. Would questions, love I'm very curious about um, specifically. So in another episode of yours, you talked about being really into Ouija boards when you were younger, but you talk about that as like being a really dark time of your life or like of you being like scary and reckless and I'm I'm so curious about like what about that what about that made you feel like your life at the time was like out of control um I think having the experience of like it talking back to you mm knock me out of like my grounded Catholicism position. And when you get knocked out of this sort of, I'm just talking out of my ass right now, like really just, you know, I haven't thought about this ever until you were asking me. I think when you get knocked out of that orbit of a firm, you're walking on firm ground and then this Ouija board thing knocks you out of orbit. You, you get really disoriented because you're starting to deal with like the other world and I've been on that thing and it moves and I challenge anybody who, um, who doesn't think that it works, go give it a shot. Um, and I, and I got really dark with it because I'm not proud of this. And I think it's been falling. It could have, it might have followed me all these years, but I was 15 or 16 and my mom and dad never, you know, we were driving vans and delivery vans at 14, you know, in LA. And so, there's this kid at high school. He was like, you know, I want to go back to Oklahoma. I don't like it here anymore. Can you drive my Honda Accord back to Oklahoma for me? And I was like 15 and he didn't ask me driver's license or anything. I said, yeah, I'll drive it back. And then, so I took my cousin who never drove before He's a year older than me and he didn't drive stick shift. I was like, you should come with me. And then I took another church friend and we, the three of us drove out to Oklahoma and on the drive out there, there's like these small, like, um, um, these small, not it's uh, cemeteries, small cemeteries, uh, a few hundred, um, you know, uh, tombstones in forests. And like in Arkansas, we pulled into one, one, one dark evening and we were like, it was freaky. 
but then I had been like doing Ouija boards for like a year or two and, you know, not every day, but I would just, you know, go do them. And I was walking around with these guys and, you know, there was, you know, it was light enough out where I could see like there's a crack in one uh, tombstone and a bunch had fallen already. And I don't know why I was wearing cowboy boots at the time. I kicked one over that one over and I took it back with me. And I wanted to use that as a, to put on top of, I wanted to put the Ouija board on top of it. Mm. Yeah. That shit's so dark thinking about it. And yeah. I did it. I, I kicked it, brought it home. I'm, you know, uh, you know, when I think about it, I, I, that's one thing that's so difficult in the chapter of my life um, during that time is like knowing that I took somebody's tombstone back to LA from Arkansas, you know, and um, I would play with it uh, in the room, you know, and it, uh, yeah, it's real. That stuff's real. So it really knocked me out of orbit about, you know, Catholicism being of the light and then this Ouija board stuff being of the dark. Um, and that stuff is real. And I still am challenged with this idea of the afterlife because that thing moves. It's not you moving it. It That thing moves. It answers questions. It doesn't always show up, but it shows up. What's wow. your experience with the Ouija board? And that's, that's wild. I mean, and I understand now why you would say that that was like a dark time of your life because to do that, it sounds like you were kind of in a space where you were a little reckless and maybe nihilistic and, um, and obviously you've grown a ton, like, look at you now, uh, probably no other tombstones behind you, unless like your chair that you're sitting in is secretly made of, it's all tombstone. Um, I mean, my experience with Ouija boards, I, I never went as far as you. I bought one when I was like 13 and then my mom found it and she made me throw it out because she said that when she was in high school, a friend of hers used one and she, that girl fell in love with a ghost who had died in a car accident. And then like a few weeks later, she died in a car accident. And my mom was like, we're not opening any portals. You're not falling in love with any ghosts. No. And that was it. And I've never Ouija board again. After, but did you ever experience the movement? No, I mean, I could, I didn't even open it. Oh, she wow. took it away so fast. Yeah. Are you open yeah. to doing it now? Uh, I mean, after your scary story, I don't know. And it seems yeah, there's a moral okay. element to all of this, you know, like, are we, should we open up that portal? That's not, well, is it open to us? Is it? clear and free can we fuck with this or are we not supposed to fuck with it? are we not supposed to access it then why is it there it's like mm. i think in any conversation and in any communication person to person etc that are like like i've i've become really aware now growing up of like what is my intention in entering a conversation like i don't just like i think about I think about what I say yeah. most of the time before I say it and about like what my intentions are when I say something to a person. And there's also a lot of like hoping that people respect boundaries and trying to respect other people's boundaries. And the, I guess the idea of like, like I'm not someone who's going to say like, yes, there are ghosts, even though I've had my own spooky moments. Um, but entering a conversation where I don't know the rules to the game, you know, or what, the the idea of like what another being yeah. has access to I'm like that's an uneven power balance totally and it's reckless too it's yeah. reckless when you don't know the rules but then there are people who 
conduct seances and, you know, have hundreds of years of history of going and doing this practice handed down from generations within their like Creole culture or yeah. uh, the Haitian cultures, you know, they have all these traditions and maybe, well, I know that in Vietnam, we have that too. Maybe we just have to be in touch with those people a lot closer and then we can practice that kind of stuff, but it's yeah. still very dark. You know, it's very dark. Um, realm yeah. Yeah. That's intense. Instead you and I will podcast I'll take care of my plants. Uh, I will think about photosynthesis and the light instead. And the stage play. And that stage play. I'm stage play. I'm gonna do it. Like I've I've always wanted to do that. And also the idea of being a playwright sounds very sexy. Mm -hmm. Writing. People will think I'm smarter than I am. <laughs> One last question. What do you think the Vietnamese culture has contributed to the rest of the world to the rest of the world Yeah, because we're no longer saying that we are <laughs> taking but we are receiving the banh mi the chocolate the all of these things that we've taken and, and and synthesized now what are we now projecting onto the world yeah. giving to the world now our vietnamese culture that's a new yeah. question i've been asking uh my last few yeah. guests I mean, maybe this is a cop out, but I will first try to say that no one ever has to justify their existence, individual or culture. We get to just exist. We don't have to give anything. We owe nobody anything at all. We are here. We are beautiful, whether or not people see us. Um, and beyond that, what else has Vietnamese culture given people? um the world i will say that we have given the people <laughs> i'm like mad libsing this right now uh, i feel like we're at a freestyle rap battle right now <laughs> yes freestyle rap battle um I feel like everything I'm going to say is going to sound really superficial, you know, even stuff like, oh, the food, the stories, blah, blah, blah. What I will say, I can only ever speak for myself. And yeah. so being Vietnamese for me and being Vietnamese means a lot of different things to a lot of different people because the diaspora is wide and diverse and gorgeous. Um, for me, though, it is reflected in my writing, uh, which is that I come from generations of trauma right? And generations of wild, hilarious stories that are filled with love. So for me, being Vietnamese is learning how to hold space for all of those things um, and being able to move forward because, you know, a lot of Vietnamese, a lot of Vietnamese people have a wild sense of humor, even though we have been through so much, been through so much. Um, and that is something that I want to put forth into the world and maybe people will be receptive to it. So whatever people get from that, they'll get from that. That's what I offer from my experience, which has grown out of my culture. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for your generosity and your ad lib skills, your mad ad lib Thank skills. You. Yeah. <laughs> that that came uh as a surprise, I'm sure. But thank you. Um, I like the first part too. We are we should be able to exist without giving two shits to anybody. 
right? We we should just, and we are, we we are doing that. And I think that we are beautiful people and yeah. uh, there's no need to have that need. But I, at the same time, I do want to know what each Vietnamese person um, globally feels like, you know, what is, what is our culture? What are, what are we projecting? What are we showing out there? I just, I'm curious about that. Yeah. For me, trauma, laughter, yeah. good food. There. T, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Kenneth. Thanks for having me. This You're is fun. Uh, I'll see you at your next fun night. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts.